Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 18th episode of this podcast, recorded on Sunday, April 30. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My guest today is Neil Katyal, one of the nation's leading Supreme Court and appellate advocates. He's a partner in the D.C. office of Hogan Lovells, as well as the Saunders Professor of National Security Law at Georgetown. Before joining Hogan Lovells, Neil served as Acting Solicitor General of the United States, arguing several major Supreme Court cases involving a wide range of issues. I try to schedule my podcast interviews in a somewhat timely manner, and this interview was no exception. First, I wanted to have Neil on because just last week, he argued his 50th case in the U.S. Supreme Court which means that he has argued more Supreme Court cases than any minority lawyer or lawyer of color. Second, I'm delighted to be broadcasting this interview of one of the most prominent Asian-American members of the legal profession in May, which happens to be Asian-American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. In our conversation, Neil and I discussed his early focus on legal academia, as well as how he moved from the classroom into the courtroom, his handling of the historic case of Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, one of the most important Supreme Court cases about presidential power and the rule of law, his pro bono work for the state of Minnesota on matters related to the murder of George Floyd, how his advocacy style has changed over the years in response to both changes in format and court composition, and finally, recent free speech controversies at law schools. Without further ado, here's my interview of Neil Katyal. Neil, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you, David. As you know, I've been a huge fan of yours for now decades. I can't believe we're that old. (laughs) So really, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and I really appreciate it because I understand you were out fairly late last night with your mom. Yep, my mom is about 90 years old. We don't know exactly how old she is. She came in from Chicago for my 50th Supreme Court argument, but yesterday was also the White House Correspondents' Dinner. So we went to party after party. She literally insisted that we keep going to the next party. So at 2.45 in the morning, I dragged her out of the French ambassador's house and (laughs) back home. So I am exhausted. (laughs) Wow. Well, at least you have good genes, I guess, 90 and still party going at three in the morning. So I take my hat off to your mom. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, me too. Although I did have to do Jen Psaki's show this morning on MSNBC. So I was like, oh, I mean, you know, can I pull it off? But hopefully it went okay. (laughs) I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. So you mentioned she was going back to or coming in from Chicago. Is that where you were born or grew up? Exactly. So my parents came over from India the year before I was born, but I was born in Chicago and spent the first 17 years of my life there until I went to Dartmouth College. And did you think as a child that maybe you might go into law? I believe your parents are more in the STEM side of things. Yeah, so my mom and dad are both not only not lawyers, they hated lawyers. So <laughs> I had no concept of what a lawyer was, except that once when I asked my mom what a lawyer is, she said a lawyer is a liar. Um, <laughs> and, um, 
And there was only one profession really for me that I was told I could be, which was a doctor. And it was incredibly hard for my mom when I didn't become a doctor. I mean, I tried, I tried in my freshman year at Dartmouth to take pre-med courses. I got like a 52% in biology. And when I told her that I was going to law school, she literally cried. And did you do anything in high school or college that sort of pointed in a legal direction? Did you do debate? Did you do anything that involved a lot of advocacy? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I was a really shy kid. And in ninth grade, right before I was about to start freshman year, I had this uncle and he said, you know, Neil, you should really try the debate team. And I didn't really think that would be for me, but I did go to the first meeting And it was one of those things where if I put more work in, I did better and better. And ultimately, by my sophomore year in high school, I was flying around the country for debate tournaments. And then that continued really for the last two years of high school and all four years of college. And many of the people that were my arch rivals then are still my arch rivals now. Tom Goldstein and I have been debating against each other since we were 16 years old. Wow. And, you know, Ryan Goodman at NYU, another very strong arch rival of mine, and both are good friends. But, you know, I was doing advocacy, David, but I never thought I would still be a practicing lawyer. Like, I went to law school for one simple reason, because I wanted to teach. And initially, I thought I would teach history. And my Dartmouth professors said to me, look, it's pretty hard to teach in college. Tenure is hard. You often get stuck going to a place that's in the middle of nowhere. You know, if you can teach at a law school, I remember my professor Doug Haynes at Dartmouth telling me this, you know, it's just an easier life. So I really went to law school with the singular desire to teach. And I wanted to teach because I wasn't a particularly good high school student. And I got into Dartmouth, probably one of the last kids to get in. But I had these professors at Dartmouth who really took me under their wing. And for me, it was really important to give back. And that was also true in law school. I was probably like the last person admitted to Yale Law School. Seriously, I mean, in my class, I didn't have the kind of stellar grades that most people did who went to Yale. But once I was there, I had these professors who just took me under their wing and and taught me how to write and think. And so... Teaching was really essential to the core conception of what I thought I would be. And so I clerked really with that in mind. I clerked for two academic judges, Guido Calabresi and Justice Breyer. And when I was clerking for Justice Breyer, I interned at the vice president's office, which is Al Gore, while I was in law school. And I maintained a close relationship with Gore and his team. And so someone from the course chief staff called me up while I was clerking and said, hey, we know you're wanting to teach and that you've taken this job at Georgetown, but we're about to nominate someone to be deputy attorney general. Would you like to be his special assistant? And I said, what is deputy attorney general? I mean, I didn't, <laughs> this was before the year of Rob Rosenstein and people who knew what deputy attorney general really was. They said it was the number two person at the Justice Department. And I said, who is that? And they said, Eric Holder. And I said, I've never heard of him. Um, (laughs) He was uh, the U.S. attorney for D.C. at the time. And so I started working for Eric. I took a leave from Georgetown immediately and ultimately became national security advisor at the Justice Department. And I thought, David, that would be my career. Like I would teach and maybe hopefully I would go in and do national security work in different administrations. I was pretty hawkish. You know, we had the embassy bombings at the time. 
And I did a lot of the response to that. And so really, that's what I thought would happen. And then after the horrific attacks on September 11th, I, like everyone was devastated. And I was teaching at Yale that year. I was a visiting professor that year. And I remember like my students and I, we like did some first responder legal work and just tried to help. And I don't think I was particularly good on it. And then all of a sudden, two months after the attack on November 13th, 2001, the president issued this military trial order for the tribunals at Guantanamo Bay. And I was teaching constitutional law in a small group. And my students used to tease me that I thought, you know, because I'm a unitary executive person, that basically everything the president does is constitutional. So I came <laughs> into my class and I passed out the order to everyone. And I said, ha, here's something totally unconstitutional. <laughs> and so in the class was a student who used to work for Senator Patrick Leahy, who was the Judiciary Committee chair at the Senate. And she told him about it. And they invited me to testify like two weeks later. And so I testified. And then like I wrote a law review article with Lawrence Tribe about this in the law journal. We rushed it to print thinking something would happen. Nothing happened. Nobody read the article. Best I could tell. Maybe my mom read it. I don't know. But ultimately, you know, the tribunal started to go forward. That's when I decided, like, if I really believe what I'm writing, I have this tool in my toolkit. I am a lawyer. Yeah, I've never filed a lawsuit, but I could do it. And so I did it with a bunch of Yale Law School students initially, including Steve Laddick, who's on the core team as a second-year law student. Wow. And that became ultimately Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, my first Supreme Court argument. I was terrified. It was my opponent, Paul Clement's 35th argument, <laughs> but it went well. And when I won that case, then everything changed for me. Then people wanted to hire me and, and the like. So was Hamdan not only your first Supreme Court argument, but was it your first argument in a court or had you done some other litigation before? I was really experienced at traffic court, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I'd only done one argument before when I was at the Justice Department for my first time. Eric Holder got me an argument on the D.C. Circuit in a big criminal case. So I did that. But that was it. And advocacy wasn't what I was focused on. I really thought I was going to be an academic and then come in and do national security work. And one of the things about doing the Guantanamo case is I did have to make a decision mentally, like, you know, if you pick this case and I was representing Osama bin Laden's driver, you're not going to be national security advisor. <laughs> you know, that's definitely a fork in the road, you know, as much as that was a conscious choice that I made at the time. So I really respect you for taking that case, just given the principles you were standing up for and how upset, obviously, you were at the horrific 9-11 attacks, and yet you believed it was important that the process be done correctly and constitutionally. So I guess, how did you then make the leap from academia to starting to do more cases post-Hamdan? Yeah, so after I won, people did start calling, including big companies, and Walter Dellinger, who was then at O'Melveny, brought me on to help with some of his cases as well, which was enormously great because honestly, I was completely broke. I'd funded Guantanamo out of my pocket. We had major credit card bills and three little kids. And so, I mean, Walter was just so generous to me in introducing me to people. But one other call happened really, I think around July, like within a couple of weeks of winning Hamdan, 
I got a call from then-Senator Barack Obama, who had heard me give an NPR interview. And he said, would you please come in and talk to me about Guantanamo? And so I did, thinking it would be a few-minute meeting. It was a three-hour meeting. Wow. And at the end of it, he said, you know, this is something only a few people know, but I am going to announce that I'm going to run for president. And would you like to be part of my kind of legal brain trust? So I did that. And at that point, had my second Supreme Court argument, a case called Anquist versus Oregon in 2008 about the class of one theory of equal protection. And when Barack Obama won the election, he and the attorney general nominee, Eric Holder, within like two days or three days of the election, called me and said, look, we've talked about it and we'd both like you to work for us, either the Just Permit or the White House. Where would you like to be? And at that point, I had gotten the litigation bug. So I'd said I'd like to go to the Justice Department. So I did that. And I did 13 arguments there as principal deputy solicitor general or acting solicitor general. So when I left that, I still thought, David, I was going back to teach 100%. Like, you know, I love teaching, support of my identity. And I didn't really think, you know, I was going to do anything else. But the attorney general announced that I was leaving on a Friday morning. And by Friday afternoon, I had 30 calls from, you know, most of the law firms, a lot of big companies and all sorts of really interesting things. And so that brought me down this path. And is that when you then connected with Hogan Lovells or was that later? Exactly. So I had worked briefly there. I worked there as a summer associate. When I was a second year summer, I worked in the Solicitor General's office and Miguel Estrada was my boss, whom I love. And I asked Miguel, I said, you know, Miguel, I have actually a third year summer before my clerkship, where should I go? And he said, Neil, one name, John G. Roberts, G for God. <laughs> and so I called then Mr. John Roberts and asked if he would think about me. And he brought me in for an interview at what was then called Hogan and Hartson. And so I worked for him that summer. And I loved the place because it's a place that is really kind and nobody thinks too much of themselves. And so when I left the Justice Department my second time back in 2011, Hogan was always going to be at the top of my list. And I was just grateful that they made it work out. No, that makes sense. Let me just double back to something interesting. You mentioned, of course, that you worked on then-candidate Obama's campaign in terms of legal matters. Didn't you also work on Bush v. Gore? Can you talk about that? I did, yeah. So back in, uh, you know, the election happened in <laughs> the mess. And as I said before, I did work on and off for Al Gore for a number of years. And so they asked me to be part of the legal team and do some of the federal litigation and the constitutional stuff. And so I actually grabbed a team of 12 students from Yale, Harvard, and Georgetown and ran a little cell that would like write some of the briefs on the federal issues at the U.S. Supreme Court and in the lower courts. Wow. And I was, to put it mildly, pretty devastated when Bush versus Gore came down. And I didn't really want to even walk in and don't think I walked into the court for a number of years after that because it was... couldn't quite believe what had happened, even though, you know, I'd written early on a couple of days after the election in a op-ed that I thought it should go to the Florida legislature, which would have meant Bush would have won. But the idea that the court was picking winners and losers when they had a lot of self-interest at stake was very troubling to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's certainly understandable. And then again, sort of jump around a little bit, but 
Can you tell me more about your time in the SG's office, including any mentors you had there? I believe you worked for then Solicitor General Kagan. I was her principal deputy, and she was a phenomenal boss, a very demanding boss. She really forced me to bring my A-game at every turn. But she herself was not someone who had done Supreme Court advocacy beforehand. Her very first argument was Citizens United. Oh, well, yes. Office. But there were people like Ed Needler, who had done probably at that point only 100 Supreme Court arguments. I think he's up to 153 <laughs> now. But Ed became really a guiding force in my life. And when I think about what good lawyering is about, I think of that man. I think he is extraordinarily principled in a way that very few people are. And, you know, he's the person that I think of, like, you know, when you ask, you know, what would Jesus do? I, I think to myself, what would Ed Needler do all the time, whether I'm in private practice or the government? Mm-hmm. I'm just blown away by the man, person, and lawyer that he is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you are not yet up to his number of arguments, but you recently completed your 50th Supreme Court argument. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And I believe, well, I guess this was actually true some time ago, but I believe that some time ago you passed Thurgood Marshall's record for the most arguments by a minority attorney or attorney of color before the court. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that number is not that high. I mean, Thurgood had 32 arguments. So, yeah, so I think I surpassed that in maybe 2017. And to me, that just underscores one real problem with my bar, which is the absolute dearth of minorities, of women, of openly gay individuals that are arguing before the court. And so it's something that really, really concerns me. Hopefully it will change, but I do agree with you. It is not the most diverse bunch. I'm curious, of the cases you've argued, looking back over the 50, is there a particular one that you're most proud of or that has special meaning for you? I mean, obviously, Hamdan comes to mind, but maybe if you could name another one, assuming Hamdan is probably the one that, I mean, you invested like years of your life in that case. Yeah, that was basically about a five-year case in the end. But to me, the one that really sticks out is myriad genetics, which you wouldn't think that a patent case would be something that would be on the top of the list, but it is. So the day that Elena Kagan was nominated, I had calls from two cabinet secretaries saying, Neil, I'd like to talk to you about the myriad genetics case. I had no idea what it was. I mean, (laughs) the whole run up to her nomination was so frenzied, she hadn't had a chance to tell me. So the question in the case is the patentability of the human genome, and in particular, whether BRCA1 and 2, which are two genes which you have in your body, if you have them, you have a very high chance of a very aggressive form of breast cancer. And that scientists had found the gene sequence that basically, you know, isolated that out and predicted whether or not you would develop this incredibly serious disease and you could take prophylactic steps if you did have it. So my wife actually had to have that blood test. Now, the blood test is like 50 cents. That's all it is. But the companies charged five to $6,000 in royalties because they said we had found and isolated this genetic sequence. And so they wanted a high amount of compensation for it. I mean, I believe very much in property rights and so on. So, you know, I thought it was a pretty complicated case. And so I started working with the NIH. Actually, every Monday, I would go to the NIH at night and they would tutor me on genetics. And so I could understand 
all the basis, not just for BRCA1 and 2, but how future genetic discoveries were going to be made, what the implications were and the like. And separately, I had Larry Summers and others on his staff teaching me about the economics of innovation and what kind of the costs would be and benefits of locking up patentable subject matters and things like that. And ultimately, I made the decision. I had 24 different memos from the federal government in the case, urging me to take a variety of different positions. And the White House basically totally gave me free control over what to do. Wow. Make the best decision you can. And so I made the decision to seek the invalidation, not just of those two gene patents, but 20,000 other gene patents that had been issued since President Reagan's administration, which was very controversial. And, you know, a lot of people said, we'll lose this nine to zero in the U.S. Supreme Court. We actually won it nine to zero in the Supreme (laughs) Court, in the opinion by Justice Thomas. And in the last eight or so years since that decision, the whole field of genomics has exploded. And literally an entire new industry has been built around this idea that we can take blood tests and run them against, you know, different patterns that have been discovered and basically predict not just disease, but also metabolism of drugs, a whole variety of other things that have sprung up around this. And so, you know, to me, that was really grateful to have had a chance to basically think that all through. So among your 50 cases, that must be one of the ones that has had the greatest practical impact on the world, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did another one just recently. I've been doing it for three years that I do think has had an enormous practical impact, but it wasn't at the U.S. Supreme Court. It's in Minnesota right after the murder of George Floyd. I felt really guilty about having done pretty much not anything in my career about police brutality. And I teach criminal law and I teach constitutional law and I was racked with guilt. And I thought to myself, you know, well, obviously I'm not a trial lawyer, so I can't really help on that. But, you know, my practice, one third of it is about overseeing high stakes trials from an appellate perspective. And we do that all the time. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is about as high stakes as it could get. So I reached out through a friend to the Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, and offered my team and my services, you know, pro bono, and he jumped on it. And so for really the last three years, it's been the most significant thing I've done in terms of hours, in terms of impact and the like, you know, every day of the trial, all the pretrial motions, everything. I have this incredible team of seven associates who work day and night. And I just argued the case in the Minnesota Court of Appeals in January, Derek Chauvin's appeal of his 22 and a half year sentence. And it was just unanimously affirmed last week in a 50 page opinion. So the case may not be over. There may be further appeals. But to me, that was literally must win litigation and one in which the human element of what we were doing and working with the family and seeing the bravery of the Floyd family. I mean, those are moments that I'll never forget as long as I'll live. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. And thank you for that work because it's work that really benefits all of us and benefits the country in which we live. So I really think that's really that's wonderful. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, 
NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today. Learn more. So shifting gears a little bit, you were talking earlier about how you were preparing for argument by, for example, spending all this time at the NIH. And I think it shows how appellate advocates do need to get very, very familiar with the facts and the record. You can't just sort of sit up there with your lofty legal principles. But I guess what I would wonder is, in terms of preparation, I've heard you do tons of moots, for example. You did, I don't know, 15 moots for Hamdan or something like that. But is there something you do in prep that's different from what most of your peers in the Supreme Court bar do? Is there something you do that's kind of offbeat? Well, the most offbeat thing is, yes, I do a ton of moots, like in Moore versus Harper, I did eight moots. And then I record them on audio, and then I usually ski to them. So I, use, yeah. I have Bluetooth in my helmet, and I will in one ear, but a moot. I'll also do it if I'm running or something like that. But somewhere where I'm totally isolated and nobody else can bug me, and I'm thinking to myself, did I answer that question well? Can I answer it better substantively? Can I answer it more quickly to use less time? Am I answering the question in a way that's inviting a question I don't want as the follow-up? And then lastly, and probably the most difficult is, can I answer the question in a way that might prompt a further question that I actually do want? Wow. So I'm thinking about all four of those things while I'm on a mogul runner, running or, or walking or whatever, you know, so... Those are the things that I do. To me, the really probably the thing that's most different about the way I approach appellate advocacy is truthfully, I don't think I'm very good. Like, I think I'm okay. But I do think my team is extraordinary. Like, I can't do many things well, but I can hire the best. And I have. I mean, the 15 lawyers who work with me are crazy, crazy good. And so what am I doing really when I'm preparing for oral argument? I'm trying to distill all the things they've told me and then ask them follow-up questions, literally the point of script me an answer to question X. And then I'm trying to refine it. But to me, the thing I learned from Guantanamo on is I can work like Google. I can work bottom-up. I can take a bazillion different inputs into me and come up with, you know, the best aggregation of them. But it's because the inputs are so extraordinary. That's really interesting. I think that is probably a different approach to what many people take. It's kind of like ChatGPT if it actually worked. I mean, in terms of just your team of 15 coming up with these brilliant answers. And then when you're at the podium, how would you describe your style of advocacy? Is there something that is sort of like the Neil Katyal style of arguing when you're at that podium, you're in that courtroom at One First Street? Well, I do feel differently at that podium than I do at other places. I actually feel more at home there than other courts, just because I've been there more than any other court. And I probably am more conversational than in any other court for that reason. But I also think this court wants to have more of a conversation than they do kind of stilted advocacy. So I don't think I'm different than others in that respect. I probably tend to be more detail-focused. There are some who are extraordinary, like Ted Olson, who are just so good at the kind of big meta picture, and I wish I were better at that. But I do, you know, I like having the command of, as you were pointing out, the facts, but also the case law, 
and the like. And so if you look at a Ted Olson argument versus one of my arguments, it's amazing that there are two people in the same profession because they tend to be pretty different. Not to say Ted isn't the master of the detail and so on as well. Much he is, of course. But I do think that he focuses on one side and I probably tend to focus too much on the other. That's very interesting, but it does make sense, I think, to those of us who've listened to your arguments. I think I recall in Moore v. Harper, you were walking Justice Thomas through some of the historical materials and you were really excited to talk to him because you said something like, I've been waiting for years to talk to you about history or something like that. That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, with this new format of Supreme Court arguments where you have two minutes uninterrupted and then, you know, Justice Thomas is going to ask the first question. I have been thinking to myself, you know, what is a way to try and harness that? And shouldn't my argument style be a little different than it was five or 10 years ago? And one of the things, particularly for that argument, because it was so much turning on originalism and the meaning of our constitution at the founding, was that history is so much on our side. And so I began, you know, when Justice Thomas asked me a question, I said, you know, I've been waiting years basically for this case, because this is a case, Justice Thomas, that speaks to your method of constitutional interpretation. And then you're right, I led him through that history. The best part about that was like, you know, a little bit later in the argument, he said, Mr. Katyal, can I ask you a question? Or I'd like to say, for the last 30 years, I've been waiting to ask you <laughs> <Yes>. this question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is a great moment. So No, exactly, because we all remember that long period when he was quiet. And I think one of the great things about the new format is it has brought him out of his shell. Would you be able to talk just briefly about what you like or don't like about this new format, which is sort of this hybrid where there's a free-for-all like the olden times, but then there's more structured questioning, seriatim, justice by justice. What do you think of it? Yeah, no, I love it. I'm a huge fan of it. And I'd like to see cameras in the courtroom. And I'd like the American public to be able to have the privilege of seeing what we all get to see who are in there. It's the people's court. And I think they should be able to see it. But, you know, if that's not happening, this is pretty good. I mean, at the beginning of COVID, we all had to buy speaker phones and literally talk on those. And that was stilted and I think got nowhere. But this format in which you have two minutes uninterrupted, then Justice Thomas asks the first round of questions and then it's a free for all. And then at the end, each justice gets to ask questions for as long as they want in order of seniority. I think it works really well. So I think there are three things about it. One, as you mentioned, Justice Thomas is now asking questions and great questions. So it's really great to have that. The second is you basically get these sustained follow-ups at the end of your argument when they do that seriata round of questioning. And before that, they felt like, particularly in a compressed 30-minute argument, the justices sometimes would, if you're on the ropes on one set of questions, Someone else might come in and just interrupt and give a whole different thing. And then you'd never get back to that. And it just was less of a search for truth. Now, basically, if your line of questioning is interrupted by another justice, if you're a justice, it doesn't matter. You're going to be able to get back to it at the end. And so what that's done is it's really made argument much more relaxed. I think the chief is also just kind of relaxed the time limits. So before it used to be really for the first 15 years I was doing this, if your red light came on, you'd look at the chief and ask to finish your sentence. And if it was more than eight words after that, he would start glowering at you. <laughs> but now it's like, 
you know, I think I was up for well more than an hour in Moore versus Harper, for example. And for me as an advocate, like I'm always worried I'm going to forget something and not say something important. But now I kind of feel like, okay, if I don't see it on the first time, first chance, I'll get another and another and another. And, you know, I think it might tax the justice's patience a little bit to have some of these arguments go so long. But um, from the advocate's perspective, I think it's been great. And they seem to be enjoying it, too. They seem to really relish it. But I am curious, how has your argument style changed in response to either A, the new format, or B, the significant change in the composition of the court? We had that decade-long period where your former boss, Justice Breyer, was the junior justice, and there was no change in the court for 10, 11 years. And then in the past six years, we've had something like four new justices. So has your approach to either written advocacy or oral advocacy changed in response to both the changes in format and the changes in court composition? Yeah, I do think it's changed a bit. In particular, I would say the loss of Justice Kennedy on the court. I think that really changed things because Justice Kennedy, like you could tell in every case, was just struggling at the bench, not in a capability way, but in a kind of like, I don't know what the right answer is. I really want to understand the best arguments on both sides kind of way. And that, I think, is less so with this court. I think they come in with their minds more made up. So what that's meant to me as an advocate is the most important thing. It's not a change in oral advocacy. It's a change in advocacy, period. Our briefs has to be like killer briefs from the start. Before, you felt like if you papered over something in a brief, nah, don't worry about it. You can fix it later at oral argument if you didn't quite hold the point that you wanted to make. But now you can't. It's all got to be at the front end of the briefing. And, you know, ideally, we will moot cases before the reply brief is filed, Ooh. if we're topside. So we really do want to try and get the best possible reply brief. So we'll, you know, give mooters a draft reply brief and ask them what worked and didn't work. So we're fine-tuning the brief. We've essentially mooted the reply brief draft before we file something. So I think that's one kind of big change. The other, you know, is it's not as much a change in the court as much as what I just come to appreciate about the court. I think they really do want to mix it up at oral argument. So before, I think I tended to be a little more on my heels. And now I am more comfortable if a justice says something that I just think is wrong you know, whether it's a minor thing like when the Magna Carta was or a major thing about like what a case means or something like that, you know, I'm going to try and say it as straightforwardly as I can. Interesting. Interesting. That point about how you can hone the reply brief, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's, that's brilliant. One more question, I guess, kind of dealing with current affairs before we shift to the speed round that I conclude these interviews with. This is quite different from what we've talked about so far. But do you have any thoughts on recent free speech controversies at law schools, including, of course, our alma mater, but others? You have friends across the political spectrum. I believe you describe yourself as a raging moderate or centrist or something like that. But what do you make of these controversies and just the state of the intellectual climates at law schools these days? Yeah, I'm really worried about the intellectual climates at law schools. I'm worried about the intellectual climates at schools, period, whether it's K through 12 or universities. I think one of the greatest things this nation has is its commitment to free speech and open debate. And I have been deeply worried that law schools 
are suffering and schools generally are suffering from a kind of dearth of debate and a willingness to attack someone's motivations and them personally. And, you know, Peter Kaisler, whom I argued Hamdan against in the D.C. Circuit, I didn't know him before that argument, but we became very close friends, even though we were on opposing sides. And I remember about five years ago, Peter saying to me, you know, Neil, I just don't ever feel like I have enough certainty in my opinions to basically just say someone is wrong. And I'm sure I'm mangling what he said, but it really resonated with me that the idea is that we really, you know, it's of course we want to take opinions and have views and so on, but we should be willing to entertain the thought we might not be right about them. And at its best, that's what oral advocacy is at the court. It's really that adversarial system in a search for truth. So a little bit of news. This summer, I'm going to launch on Substack in part. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm going to launch a podcast that is about some of these issues. It'll be called Courtside. And we're going to take a different Supreme Court case every week and have a conversation with a non-lawyer and really try and get at, like, what's the case really about and what were the arguments on both sides, the best arguments and the like. And I want to try and model a little bit of that civility, which I know I'm lacking sometimes in, but I want to try and do better myself and try and really, you know, educate listeners about it. So my first guest is going to be John Mulaney, the comedian. Oh, wow. And it'll go on from there with a really exciting group of people. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. I look forward to listening. I'm curious. I think you're a model, really, of civil discourse. I've seen you argue or appear at many Federalist Society events, for example. How would you respond, though, to critics who say that you shouldn't legitimate FedSoc by sharing a stage or going to their events? I can't even really understand that criticism, honestly. You know, it's an organization. I don't know that it even has itself established views. But if you don't like the organization and, you know, certainly can understand that, then argue against it, like make the arguments, whatever the substantive arguments there are. You know, I've probably done 10 or so of their annual conventions. Each time have been super impressed with the dialogue and debate. So, you know, that's the part I participated in. I understand that like John Eastman is the chair of some committee or was. I don't know anything about that committee. I wouldn't participate in that committee if he is. So, you know, I think I don't mean to rule out any criticism of the organization. But again, I feel like there's a lot of people throwing a lot of stones in big brushstroke ways that, sorry to mix metaphors, but <laughs> basically that I think, you know, there's room for granular criticism, but, you know, to condemn a, you know, an entire organization or an annual meeting or something like that, I, I think is the wrong way to go. Just make the argument against it on the merits. I agree with you. And I wrote a critical piece about, I think, FedSoc in the wake of January 6, including some things about John Eastman, and he is no longer the head of that separation of powers practice group. So that's good. But again, I agree entirely with what you were just saying. So turning to the final four questions, my first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or it can be laws, the more abstract system. Well, I think I just want to focus on my bar, which is the Supreme Court bar and its lack of diversity. I mean, I think if you look at oral arguments over the last five years, about 17% were done by women. We have no good data on the number of minorities or openly gay advocates, but it's even going to be less than that. So 
in this day and age, when law schools for decades have been at 50-50 on gender and, you know, high numbers of minority and LGBTQ folks out in law schools, I mean, something is still not happening in the bar. And to me, that is something we have to fix. Absolutely. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? My answer is going to change from, if you asked me this five years ago, I would have said a ski instructor. But (laughs) my answer now is actually improv comedian. Ah, okay. Yeah. So I have a dear friend, Mike Berbiglia, who is a terrific improvisational comic. And I guess it was three years ago, right when COVID hit and we were doing all these Zooms, I said to him that, you know, I was feeling really kind of stilted and like scripted because I'd even put stuff up on my screen, including during oral arguments. And I said, I'm losing my touch. Not that I had a great touch, but I'm losing my ability to be more spontaneous. And he thought about it for a couple of days and said, you know, Neil, I think you should meet my improv coach, Liz Allen. So I met her on Zoom and I started working with her in a group of improv comedians. And it's really changed my life. Not that it's made me funnier, but it's put me in touch with the strength of the group. And it's a very different way of thinking about even life. And so I've been incredibly taken with it. And it's become pretty central to how I'm going through things, even oral arguments. And indeed, in the in the crowd on Wednesday's argument was Alan. That's great. Do you perform publicly anywhere as part of an improv group? <laughs> if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> no, um, I haven't really performed publicly. I did do something with Jordan Clapper and Asif Mondby in Brooklyn for about 500 people in November. And Tom Goldstein was in the audience. But that's my one kind of more public thing. That's great. I do know that you played yourself on Billions and House of Cards, I think. So you you have dabbled in acting, but I didn't know about the improv. So that's very interesting. Well, yeah, and that that acting was not, I mean, I was playing myself. So it was like, <laughs> you know, I remember in the House of Cards, you know, I was literally doing a Supreme Court argument in the show. And during one of the breaks, one of the people, the extras in the audience said, where did you go to acting school? You seem so <laughs> realistic when you're arguing in the court. Like, you know, this is what I do. I love that. Uh, My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Well, I get more now. I'm up to about six and a quarter hours now because I got this aura ring about three years ago. Before that, I really did sleep only about four hours a night. And I'd read all these studies about how bad that was. But I just really didn't ever feel like I needed more sleep. But the studies scared me. And so I got this ring and I'm pretty conscious of it. And so I try and get that. Obviously, last night, because of my mom, I didn't get that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but uh, party animal kept me awake. But uh, but normally it's about six and a quarter hours. Wow. I did read maybe in a profile of you around the time of Hamdan that you had spent a year leading up to that case getting four hours. But I guess it's four hours was a regular thing for you. So uh, I, I I could not do that. <laughs> I do hear that there is a gene that some people have, and, and I hope I have it, that is what explains why I need less sleep. But I've really forced myself to try and sleep longer. Good, good. Yeah, I think everyone should. And my final question is, do you have any parting words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? I think you don't really know the twists and turns of what your legal career will be. 
I remember a professor when I was in law school saying that the average law school graduate changes jobs five times in the first five years. I think that might have been a bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> but it is true. If I saw you in law school, David, and you told me you're going to be partner at a law firm arguing Supreme Court cases, I would have said you're absolutely bananas, nuts, and like 10 other words. <laughs> and yet here I am. And so I think that the beauty of law is that there's a lot of different paths and it takes a while to know what actually the path is that you want. I mean, for me, I really thought I'd be an academic, as I was saying earlier, but I, my dream job, the dream job was to teach at Yale Law School, where we both went. And because of the students, I wanted to teach them so badly. And when I was a visiting professor there and being evaluated, I worked so hard to try and get that job. Like, it was all I cared about. And I didn't get it. And easily the best thing. Not even close. And school's great and, and so on. But I found my calling a little bit by accident by bringing a pro bono case, challenging Guantanamo and having that open up all these other doors. And so I feel incredibly fortunate to have had that happen. Well, you have certainly chartered your own path throughout the law, and it has been a remarkable one. Thank you so much for joining me, Neil. I'm so great for your time and your insight and all that you've done for the bar and the country. Thank you so much, David. Ditto to you. Thanks so much to Neil for joining me. Congratulations again to him on his 50th Supreme Court argument, as well as his success more generally. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, May 17. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>